our second creator interview podcast. I'm Rebecca, the audio head at Sparkler Monthly. I'm here with the incredible Jen Doyle, the creator of Knights Errant, plus uh, Lillian Diaz-Prisbel, who, if you've been following our podcast, you're very familiar with. She's the comics editor here at Sparkler. Hello. How is everybody this fine Sunday afternoon? They can't answer you, Lillian. Oh, come on. It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> How are you guys? That's, you know, you can answer that question, too. <laughs> doing well it's nice today but now it's dark because it's the east coast so it's nice yeah yeah (laughs) i still have a couple more hours of sunshine here in in los angeles so yay so so welcome to our interview with jen doyle um i'm super excited to do this i'm super excited that jen agreed to do this um because i think it's fun to kind of i know that the fans really enjoy getting to hear creators talk about their process and talk about their background and then just kind of chat about I guess kind of what it's like to work with an editor, even though we've only been working together for about, I don't know, two weeks now, three yeah. weeks. Um, yeah. So yeah, and since you're, you're the newest addition to our lineup, I, I thought it would be a fun way to kind of introduce you and introduce the comic and get people extra excited about it, because it's I'm really excited about it. Yeah, so. we're all really excited about it. <laughs> I'm excited, um, too. <laughs> yay! So we, we solicited for questions online and basically only got one person who responded to that, which is actually not that unusual. <laughs> I don't feel like we ever get that many questions from the fan base. So for future reference, fans, please send us questions for these. Um, but the one question we got was a really good one, or at least I thought it was good because I felt like it opened up a potential sort of larger discussion and kind of a good good train of how to get into this podcast, which was... How did we, as Sparkler, end up acquiring Knights Errant? Basically, like, the short answer is that I'm kind of an internet stalker. Um, (laughs) Like, man, this must have been several years ago, like, probably three years ago. um, I started reading Knights Errant just, it had popped up on somebody's blog, like, this is the original incarnation. Somebody had recommended it as, like, webcomics that are cool and, like, stuff to look out for. And Mm -hmm. I started reading... Very early in the process, it was, like, right when Will first arrives at the camp and, like, sees oh. Oswald for the first time. That's really um, early. <laughs> was, that, was, that the really old, early. was that the old version yeah. or the new version? That's, that's this the, old, the version. old version. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, even, I don't remember who recommended it. I don't remember where I got it from. But I was like, this is really interesting. And then over the years, you know, you kept working on those pages. And one of the, the things that I think is really exciting about comics in general, and I think web comics in particular, is you get to watch an artist go through their, their growth process. And what I thought was particularly exciting about Knights Errant as a, as a series was that you really grew a lot as an artist and a writer just over the course of that amount of time. Yeah. And just <laughs> in a good way. And I think that that's, you know, I think that that's something that's important for young creators to sort of see is that, mm-hmm. You know, if you're only seeing kind of everybody's quote unquote like professional work and like where they are when they've sort of succeeded for whatever definition of success you want, you don't really get to see kind of how the sausage is made in some ways. And I think that that's it's important and inspirational for people to see that. This is something that's good to know about me as an editor is that I like seeing people's early work and I've got a long memory. Um, And so if I see something several years back, I'll often if it, if it catches my attention in some way, I'll keep it in the back of my head. And in a lot of ways, like finding, getting published or, or getting 
getting sort of picked up by something larger. It's a matter of not just having the talent, but also being in the right place at the right time. So Mm -hmm. my best other example of this is that probably in my first couple weeks at Tokyo Pop way back in 2004, I got a submission from uh, a young male artist who I think had just graduated from He'd basically just gotten out of art school and it was a story that didn't make any sense for Tokyo pop to publish. I was like, no, this isn't, this isn't right for us, but I really liked his talent and I liked his style. And four years later, <laughs> I managed to find uh, an adaptation of a Harper Collins series. And I was like, Hey dude, I know that you draw animals. Well, how do you feel about drawing cats? Um, <laughs> and he's been the artist on the warriors comics ever since. Oh, so, nice. so that's, that's just something to keep in mind that like, for people who are sort of out there looking to get published, a lot of the time it's not just an issue of, you know, having the, the raw material. It's an issue of finding the right opportunity. So anyway, <laughs> there was a really long divergence to be like, so I stalked you online for like three or four years. And then <laughs> I think last fall, uh, this is the other thing about me. I spent a lot of time on the Internet, but I don't actually talk to people a lot on the Internet. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, uh, kind of somewhat dating back to Tokyo Pop and like not wanting to get too directly involved with certain fan conversations for professional reasons. And then I think maybe about a year ago or maybe last fall, you were talking on your blog about having a magical girl pitch. And you were like, oh, I've got this idea, blah, blah, blah. I don't know where I push, uh, send it. And I think I just like pinged you a private message that was like, you should send it to Sparkler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really surprised. I was like, oh, okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And I assumed that at that point you had no idea who we were, like, because I don't think anybody really knows who we are yet. We're still, that's like our biggest challenge is still kind of throwing ourselves as like a publisher and and getting people to find us. Um, Is that correct? (laughs) Like, had you heard of us (laughs) at that point? Or Um, Like, at that point, I'd heard of you um, because my girlfriend had been following the offbeat Kickstarter stuff. Cause, Got it. Because she's a huge offbeat fan. Um, Got it. She so has excellent a, taste. <laughs> she does. And so I most I knew about you from that. Um, mm-hmm. I still haven't read offbeat, but I did. St- I still am meaning to. <laughs> this is something we can help you out with. <laughs> <laughs> Real easily now. <laughs> Would you like a set of offbeat books? <laughs> we can hook you up. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. Okay, anyway, this is this is the benefits of working to, with a publisher is you get free books sometimes, so take advantage <laughs> yeah. of it. Yeah, so anyway, that particular story idea, I guess, didn't really go anywhere, but we kind of emailed back and forth about different ways we could potentially work together for a while. And then spring rolled around, and you've been helping out little foolery with getting um, Small Town oh. Witch out the door. So right. I knew that you'd been really busy with that and hadn't been updating uh, Knights Errant Pavan, which is sort of the, the Knights Errant reboot that you were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to a point as a company where basically like most publishers have sort of a, a core series that drives a lot of their attention and kind of a lot of their sales. And we were hoping that Offbeat was going to be that series for us. And it, it was to some extent, but once it was done, we were kind of like, well, we need something new now that's going to hook in new readers. And the marketing person that we're working with really wanted something in color. And so I thought, hey, maybe we could get Jen to work with us. (laughs) Or uh, Jen's someone who I'd really like to work with, and I think this series is really interesting and exciting, and I feel like if we give Jen money to keep working on it, maybe that'll (laughs) sort of move back to the front burner of Jen's workload. Um, So, yeah, I basically emailed you and 
kind of made you an offer and you seemed really excited about it. So that was, yes, that was a very, <laughs> that was a very well-timed email on your part. Cause I had just quit my job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing up to then? If I may ask, what was your um, day job? I was working as, as tech support. So I was working on the phones and over chat, like helping people use this program uh-huh. to help manage their businesses and uh-huh. like I really enjoyed my time there and like I enjoyed it I don't know it taught me a lot of stuff but I got to a point where I was like all right I need to leave <laughs> yeah I want to focus on art <laughs> for a bit <laughs> so. so yes so as of next week we will have what is it eight new pages of Knights Errant going up mm-hmm. yep I'm coloring them right now <laughs> hooray <laughs> Super well, exciting. So plus it's the not the second. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that's fine. So let's talk about kind of your background as an artist. So I think you were saying that you didn't go to art school or you no. weren't an art major, is that correct? That is correct. Um I in high school I'd taken IB art um uh-huh. at the international school, but then I dropped out of it because um it was the teacher was very intense and I wa- I didn't I wasn't about that at the time, but then mm-hmm. I took an, another like accelerated art class and I was actually looking at art colleges to apply to, but at this point I was like hmm, maybe I don't want to go to art school maybe I just want to well, maybe I want to major in something else but still focus on art and on the side, mm-hmm. so I went to a private liberal arts school and majored in history mm-hmm. and was actually majoring in art at the same time, but I didn't like the department there, so mm. I just focused mostly on history. But then I did a lot of freelance stuff on the side. Speaking as someone who also went to private liberal arts school and who had a lot of friends in an art department there that they were not a big fan of, <laughs> I know exactly how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's that's really interesting because a few of our other uh uh, fantasy creators, people who are doing things that are more either period pieces or fantasies, a lot of them are way more into history than they are into other fantasy media. And I'm thinking of Jen Quick, I'm thinking of Alex Singer, the writer on Sphere Theory. They've both talked uh-huh. about this a lot. Do you do you think that that's something that applies to your own work? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, And just to make sure I heard that correctly, like preferring the historical side to like fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm definitely more interested in, like, historical fantasy, or, like, that focuses more on the historical side rather than magic. Like, Knights Errant doesn't have any fantasy in it. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's a fictional sort of version of of reality, so it's it's a fantasy in that regard, but not, like, a magic fantasy. So, more, I guess, more like an alternate history. So, 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 like, in terms of... uh, coming up with your ideas do you draw from history a lot i mean considering uh-huh. you know definitely. it definitely um was, was european history kind of your specialty or or it, actu- it actually wasn't my specialty was uh post-war america <laughs> interesting interesting like, post-world war ii america uh-huh. <laughs> and so yeah i actually didn't focus much on medieval or renaissance history but i took a couple classes in it but yeah, other than that, I was mostly looking at, like, Jim Crow <laughs> policies uh-huh. in America and miscegenation laws. So there was actually... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but in that case, it was just because I really liked a professor. So uh-huh. 
I wanted it to. It's funny how that, yeah, that, that'll drive your interest a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, a good teacher can really direct you in, in exciting ways. So, exactly. uh, but yeah, it didn't surprise me at all to know that you had a history background because it's, it's definitely one of the things that impressed me right off the bat with Knights Errant is how grounded it felt. Um, I mean, there's a lot of artists out there and comic artists in particular who get, I think, hung up on sort of the trappings of world building rather than getting really understanding their own fictional history. Mm-hmm. And it felt even in those sort of early days of Knights Errant that everything you were doing was very grounded and a sense of reality and a sense of plausibility. So that's, that's something that attracted me to it as an editor. Plus the art style and the characters. <laughs> like I don't want to underrate how great your characters are because I think that that's absolutely phenomenal. So I oh, think thank you so much. The, the people who you've come up with and the way they interact with each other was just really compelling right off the bat. So, uh, and it's, it's kind of the fun thing about doing sort of working on this reboot of it together is ways to kind of keep that excitement both for sort of new readers and for people who are kind of familiar a little bit with where the story's going. Mm-hmm. Um, like you and I have kind of talked through the first volume and some of sort of your later plans for this at this point. Yeah. And I think there, there's definitely going to be a lot that's different between the two, the two versions, but having that sense of surprise and kind of keeping that uh, momentum of interaction up, I think is, I think it's going to be really fun. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned going to international school um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How did you end up overseas? Um, so my mom's Indonesian, um, so okay. half my relatives live in Indonesia, and my dad got a job offer there and at the start of high school, so mm-hmm. I had gone to one semester of high school in Texas, but mm-hmm. then they were like, all right, we're going to Indonesia. I was like, oh, okay. So we moved to Indonesia halfway through the year, and I was Ooh. the transfer student. Wow. At this really, really, really prestigious international school. And up until then, I'd gone to like public school and like we were like middle class and this was like a complete class change. Interesting. (laughs) So it was very surreal. It was like a bunch Uh of ambassadors kids, um, like oil kids, like their families were in oil. So they were there and it was weird. And, um, um, although the oil side's probably a little less weird coming from Texas, although it depends oh, on what yeah. part of Texas you're in. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was in like Dallas and okay. not from an oil family at all. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was the only American there who wasn't there for oil or politics. Uh-huh. I was, um, my dad is an IT guy. <laughs> he, he was just working at the bank there, but yeah. So when I went to school there, uh, one of the things that interested me was how differently um, American history was taught mm. um, at that school versus how it was taught in public in Texas public education. Mm-hmm. You can imagine there are like a lot of differences, <laughs> not just in focus. <laughs> um, what's what's is there any you can think of in particular? Um, when we learned about the American Revolution in Jakarta International School. It was a lot less, yeah, then the Americans rightfully won their land from the British. It was more like, here's a more even-handed look at the situation. Uh And, I don't know, it was a lot less America, hoorah, 
So, <laughs> and it was interesting. So, and then um, going into college, that's why I majored into history and historiography, which is like the study of how history is told. It's also mm-hmm. some people call it postmodern history, but that <laughs> that tends to confuse more than like <laughs> define what it is. So it's just like analyzing biases in historical writing. Nice. Nice. Those are good, like, liberal arts college terms. <laughs> yeah. Like, another one is hegemony. Yes, hegemony. Liminality was the one that really blew our oh, minds yeah. my freshman year. None of us could really figure out what liminal meant. And now I'm like, <laughs> God, it's such a useful term. Yeah. Um, college is yeah. a liminal space. <laughs> college is definite. I feel like most of your 20s are basically a liminal space, to be honest. So. Yeah. Um, some other good right. terms. Hey, it's listeners, if, if you're lost, you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> Should we define what liminality is? Try Could you? <laughs> um, so liminality is basically uh, the space between things. And so when you're a teenager, you're in a liminal space between childhood and adulthood. Um when you're, you know, going through puberty, you're in a space, a liminal space between childhood and adulthood. So, it, like, mm-hmm. I learned about it through a religion 101 class, which when we all signed up for it, we thought was going to be like world religions. Let's talk about, you know, mm-hmm. Hinduism versus Buddhism. And it turned out to be like critical theory of Freud and, and Derrida <laughs> and like oh, Axis Mundi's and all of these sort of philo- philosophical concepts that related a lot more to sort of anthropology than what we thought of as religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up being this great framework for like everything else I did at school. So that was, that was useful. I'm trying to think of what's another good example of a liminal state. Stage I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, like moving to doing freelance full time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So career, you could have sort of a liminal state in your career. Um, yeah. You could describe, you know, being on the gender spectrum somewhere as being a liminal state, depending on how <laughs> strongly you feel about there being a gender binary, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. That kind of thing. It's it's when you're when you're in transition. So. Well, it's it, it, a liminal <laughs> stage. Wilfred's in a liminal stage in their life. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> And, and we were, this is something we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about where the series goes is kind of what is the end of Wilfred's liminal state? Um, is there an end to Wilfred's liminal state? Maybe there isn't. Maybe Will's just going to stay that way. So, yeah, um, that's that's TBD, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, so so how did you kind of get into comics then? Um, I actually didn't start doing comics until drawing comics until college like I started Night Sarah in my sophomore year um, Mm -hmm. in college and mostly I was just drawing like illustrations and one day I was having really bad artist block Mm -hmm. and I was like this art I'm drawing does it mean anything (laughs) 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 what meaning is there like I was having like an existential crisis and I was like I need to make my own story I need to do it. <laughs> then it will have meaning. <laughs> and at this stage, I was trying to find, like, I was trying to find a shoujo, like, war story that I wanted to read. Mm. Like, I was just looking through all these manga and, like, all these novels. And I wanted, but every time I looked for 
um, something to read, I kept being disappointed and I was like, okay, I'm going to make my own story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to like entertain myself. <laughs> and Knights Errant kind of grew out of that. And that Knights Errant was the first time I'd ever drawn a comic. Oh, uh, wow. That's why I learned a lot. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of reassuring for like young creators as well. The idea that, you know, particularly, you know, in the age of Tumblr and social media, there's a sense of like, mm-hmm. if you haven't succeeded by the time you're 22, then you're a failure for life because there's all these talented kids out oh, there. Yeah. No, and no, it's like, no. no, you can really start pretty late in the game. So not that sophomore in college is late in the game, you know, looking back on it now. But, um, yeah. You know, people like E.K. Weaver, uh, who's obviously an artist before that, but, like, started TJ in a mall, I guess, I don't know, probably in her 30s. I don't know how exactly how old she is, but... Um, yeah, yeah there's you're never too too old to be creative and to start something new. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into kind of reading comics? Were there things along the way that inspired you? Like, um, um, what were some of your, were you a comics reader as a kid? Definitely. I read, I started reading manga really early um, in Indonesia because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I would go to Indonesia to visit relatives and they had boxes upon boxes of shoujo manga translated into Indonesian. Mm-hmm. So I read. And you like, can read it or? I kind of. Like, I half understood what was going on. So I read Uh Candy Candy. That's how I read (laughs) Sailor Moon. Nice. (laughs) And, like, all these other classic 70s shoujo manga. Like, Uh that's what I kind of grew up with. And then uh, back in the States, there was Sailor Moon. And Uh I started buying the English volumes of Sailor Moon. I actually didn't start reading American comics until, I guess, high school or college. Um, cause up until then it had all been like manga. Yeah. So yeah, d- manga definitely got me interested in like doing comics and I think it's what's influenced my style the most. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads into another question, which Leanne had suggested before, which is, uh, how do you feel like, what do you feel the differences between working in black and white and working in color? Um, cause I, my background, like I was an American comics fan when I was a kid, and so I liked stuff in color, and then I switched to manga, and particularly after working at Tokyo Pop for a while, I have a really hard time reading a lot of color comics. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to have a pretty kind of clear and defined color palette, which again is something I like about Nice Errant. <laughs> um, like, do you, how do, and you've kind of gone back and forth between black and white and color, both in the original Nice Errant and then kind of in the reboot now. Discuss. <laughs> Do you prefer one way or the other? You know, how does that, do you think it affects your aesthetic? Um, black and white is definitely easier. Mm-hmm. Though, if you start with color, switching to black and white and grayscale is actually mm. pretty difficult. Um, because, also, like, yeah. when I switched the first time to black and white uh, from doing full color, I was like, all right, I'll just do grayscale, but, like, I'll just color with gray. And mm. that leads to over-rendering it mm-hmm, because in mm-hmm. black and white and grayscale, it's ten, it tends to like be best if you keep it a little more simplified. And also it's really useful uh, when you're making the outfits and coloring them um, to make sure that their tones are still dynamic mm. um, because in color, it's easy to give 
clothing a bunch of midtones, and that does not transfer well if you're doing grayscale black and white, because then it just looks like all their color, all their clothes are just the same color of gray, the same shade of gray. Right, right. It looks flat. Yeah. When designing, like, a character's outfit, it's just, I figured out it's really useful to lay down it, lay it down in gray, in, like, grayscale, just to make sure that it can transfer well. Um, and then choosing the colors for the outfit later, just to make sure it has, like, a good balance. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, other than that, grayscale is easier, I think, and faster. But, um, as you can tell, I've been really kind of wishy-washy <laughs> with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> but with this version, it's going to be full color. Uh, I'm just going to, like, make myself do it because I almost always like how it looks better in the end. Mm-hmm. But in the first version of Knights Errant, I kept switching between black and white and color. because so I was like, what do I want the aesthetic to be? But I think I finally have a better grasp about how I want the comic to look. And that's mm-hmm. like heavy blacks with like flat colors. Yeah, yeah. I think like the heavy blacks thing <laughs> is something that a lot of artists working in color will kind of slide on. And it really does help definition and kind of depth. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things I would tell young creators a lot when I was doing portfolio reviews at Tokyo Pop or when we were reviewing um, stuff for like Rising Stars of Manga is that it's really easy to think black and white and just sort of tonally where really the idea of using screen tones is to create texture rather than to create sort of fake color. Um, and if you're just using grays to kind of substitute for color, that's where things end up, you know, looking really flat and don't have enough definition. And having really dark spot blacks helps a lot with that. But then thinking of those gray tones as really representing something other than a color tone, you know, trying to get that depth, to get that texture, um, that sort of aesthetic, I feel like is part of what, you know, kind of defines the sort of manga look as manga. It's one of the things that I think unifies mm-hmm. um a very wide variety of aesthetics that sort of fall under the manga umbrella is that use of zipatones and sort of the texture tones rather than a color aesthetic. So uh, are there artists who kind of influenced you creatively? I mean, we talked yeah. about, you know, Sailor Moon and Candy Candy. Who kind <laughs> of inspires you? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, Kentaro Mura, who did Berserk, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has inspired me a lot. His style is a little too heavy for me to, like, try to emulate. Um, mm-hmm. But the way he does, like, I don't know. Sometimes his stuff can seem a little crowded, but the amount of detail he'll put in things is, like, breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Nakamura, Asumiko, uh, Nakamura Asumiko really inspires me as well. Good choice. Um, <laughs> I really love how she does paneling and um, how she balances the grays and blacks. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. she, she tones really sparsely, um, yeah, and mostly relies on the heavy blacks, which I like. Let's see, Jillian Tamaki, mm-hmm. also really inspires me. I really like her, how she does backgrounds, especially. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really like how she lays out her pages and how she kind of does decompressed paneling, mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like she's taking too long. It's like the just the right amount of pacing. Mm-hmm. I really like her stuff as well. I know there's others. 
Utena really inspired me. So Ikuhara's directing style. Yeah. And aesthetics, especially mm-hmm. from Utena, have kind of inspired me. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I keep trying to get into his newer series, and so far neither of them have really worked for me, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, your mileage is varied on that. <laughs> like, I really love Utena. Um, uh-huh. I stuck around for most of Penguin Drum, and then it really made me angry, so I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with uh, Yuri Kuma... You, it's a an acquired taste, but I liked it. But okay. you have to get past the first three episodes. Okay. Yeah, I think like, I may have stalled out at episode three, so I should maybe I should give it another chance. Uh, give episode so. four a chance, uh, but even then, it's I still don't think it's as strong as Utena. But like, it does do interesting meta stuff about expectations, hmm. about how you should perform your queerness. Because. Uh-huh. <laughs> huh. It's looking at the class S tropes in Yuri about how mm-hmm. it's okay to like essentially have a Yuri relationship in high school, but after high school you're supposed to grow out of it and marry right. a man. And right. like the reason that the main character is ostracized is because that is because she has made it clear that she's gay and will continue yeah. to be gay. But yeah, so I think Yuri Kuma does interesting things. I'm not a fan of the fan service, but after episode four, the fan service doesn't really come up as much, hmm. and eh, it's worth the try. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll give it another shot. I'm kind of torn. Like I've been skipping around through a bunch of different series recently, so like I went back and watched more of Hunter Hunter after talking to you about that as well. <laughs> oh um, boy. <laughs> <laughs> And that one, it's just, like, there's so much of it now that it's going to take me a while to get through, so I need something kind of as a little palate cleanser in between. Yeah. So more Ikuhata is the answer. I need to finally buy that third Utena box set, because, like, when they did the really nice Right Stuff box sets, I got the first two. And those are They're gorgeous, and they're really fascinating, because they have all of these creator interviews in them as well. So, like, I think everybody knows that Ikuhata's kind of nuts, but, like, actually reading his commentary about stuff... It's just, it's really interesting to see kind of how nuts he is, but also how brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, like, how much of that stuff is is just very deliberate that he's doing to kind of mess with people, um, mm-hmm. to kind of push the limits on what you could do with anime. Yeah, uh, yeah Utena really blew me away the first time I saw it. Uh, Utena is one of the things that's influenced me the most. Um, I'm not sure how much of it will show up in Knights Errant, but it'll probably factor in somewhere. <laughs> So one of the things that's going to come up in Knights Errant, and I don't think this is a spoiler, is that it ties into religion and kind of the religious differences between the characters in this sort of faux Renaissance society. And um, actually, knowing that you'd spent time in Indonesia, I didn't I didn't know you were part Indonesian until today. It made me a lot more comfortable about how you were going to be handling Islam, um, mm-hmm. since that's something that Leanne is is also Muslim. Um, <laughs> so like we've got a couple of people on staff who can help us kind of like keep track of things, but, um, and, and kind of Muslim pick stuff, I guess. Um, but yeah, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like being in, particularly after being in Texas in a country that's like heavily Islamic and, and how that's kind of, has that influenced you? Has it made you think about things differently or? So, um, my family's Muslim. I'm a very, I'm a very casual Muslim. I, yeah, I'm super casual about it. But my mom is devout. Um, mm-hmm. Like she's been on the Hajj, and she's 
super, super, super religious. Um, so in Texas, I kept noticing that my friends would freak out if I said I wasn't Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know why, like, because I'd grown up in the Indonesian community. So mm-hmm. I assumed that it was, like, normal for people to not be Christian um, or to be, <laughs> like, Muslim. It is. <laughs> yeah. So in Texas, it was like, oh, yeah. are are you sure you want to be Muslim? Like, can can we convert you? How's yeah. your family life? It's like, my family life's fine. <laughs> um, they tried to trick me to going to church with them by getting me <laughs> to spend the night on a Saturday. Oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, going from that to Indonesia was, like, interesting because I went from being, like, a part of a minority in Texas to being part of the majority in Indonesia. And um, Indonesia is really moderate um, mm-hmm. about Islam. Like, you don't see, like, half the women wear hijab, um, but half of them don't. It's, like, a lot less strict about things. Um, I don't know. It was nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, like, I think that's something that people... Americans in particular, non, non-Muslim Americans kind of forget that like so much of the world's Muslim population lives in Southeast Asia because yeah. I think we associate it so strongly with the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that there's this large moderate Muslim population out there, <laughs> I think that's, that's a good thing for people to remember. So yeah, definitely you know, like, like <laughs> the context of our somewhat hysterical society these days. So yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, I, I, my parents are nominally Christian. Um, mm-hmm. my dad was raised Quaker. My mom was raised Catholic. Um, and my, my mom's family, my mom was one of eight kids. Uh, her siblings range from very conservative, both Protestant and Catholic to, you know, even more liberal than my family. So I've definitely <laughs> had some of those like conversion conversations with some of my relatives at different times. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. So no one's tried to sneak me into church. Like we would just sort of go. I can't know, believe they would. Tr- that's such a, that's such a like little kid <laughs> way of doing it too. Like, I know. Right. It was like they they invited me over to watch Fern Gully. This was like the night. <laughs> And I was like, oh, Fern Gully, this has nothing to do with church. <laughs> All of a sudden you're in church. Like, how did you get there? Yeah, it's like, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> how do you kind of handle that? Like, did you just, you know, be like, no thanks, or? Like, no thanks, I'm fine. And yeah. then they would, like, back down, because they, they were, like, Texan, they were polite. <laughs> polite right, Texans. Right. And... I would also get weird conversion talks uh, when I went to, like, uh, Muslim parties, like, Pangajian is what mm. they're called. And, like, I didn't, since I was really casual about being Muslim, like, I didn't know how to pray very well when I was young. So when I would go to Pangajian, I would, like, hang out with the other kids, and it'd be time to pray, and they'd be like, Jen, why aren't you coming to pray? And it's like, oh, I don't really know how. They're like, Jen, if you don't learn how to pray by your nine, you're going to hell. And I'm like, it's like, I am nine. I'm not in hell yet. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's Religious communities are fun. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Yup. <laughs> Actually, I mean, even the, the, not that I think of myself as a Quaker, but I've been to Quaker meeting both in Massachusetts, where I grew up, and then Indiana, where my dad grew up. 
<laughs> like Quaker meeting in Indiana is way different from Quaker meeting in Cambridge. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, Quakers, they're pacifists in general, but they don't, you know, it's, it's a plain society. So like there aren't crosses in church, you know, everything is very kind of plain. You don't have a lot of like stained glass windows and kind of some of the other traperies of larger organized religions. Usually, I mean, traditionally Quakers don't have, a sermon necessarily it's it's a meeting so everybody's sort of more or less equal and so if you're in cambridge you kind of go and everybody sits quietly until someone whoever in the you know community stands up and talks about something so whether it's something that's been on their mind that week or something that made them think about faith or or whatever it could be anything um uh and it's very sort of free form um the one in indiana is there was definitely a minister kind of leading things so he'd do a sermon and then uh, people would sort of stand up. So like when I went with my grandparents, my grandfather would always stand up and say how thankful he was that like his family was visiting and he got to spend time with us, which is really nice. And then <laughs> my, like, I remember one time this lady stood up and she's like, you know, I'm really thankful that God sent us this minivan. And we're like, oh. <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, you know, we were really praying for a minivan because we needed a big <laughs> car for our family. And then finally we found one and it was everything that we wanted. It was even the color we wanted. It was purple. And we knew that it was from God because it had a Christian fish symbol on the back. And I was like, oh, wow. wow. <laughs> this is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, you know, uh, the, the Quaker meeting in Cambridge is way different from that. So, yeah, religious communities are interesting. That's yeah. the moral of the story. Come, and they're going to come up in Knights Errant later. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> To tie it all back, yeah. (laughs) Actually, uh, speaking of Knights Errant, uh, so we discussed that this is sort of your second go-around, that you've restarted it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you're approaching it now that you're a much more experienced uh, comic creator? Yes. I have a rule now (laughs) for how long Mm -hmm. scenes should be. (laughs) (laughs) And my rule is that a scene should be five to seven pages. Like, anywhere between that. It can be less, but the maximum it can be is five to seven pages. <laughs> was there a scene that you had drawn previously that you, like, you were like, oh, man, that boy, did that violate the rule? Like, what kind of made yeah. you come up with this rule? <laughs> it was, like, this 10, 12-page scene. And I was just like, this is going nowhere. I could have cut down, cut this down if I had scripted this better beforehand. <laughs> uh-huh. But... I was like, I just kept having to add more pages to, like, cover up the pacing mistake I had made earlier, hmm. like, to make it seem fluid. Mm-hmm. I forget which one it was. I think it might have been the one where Kadeen and Oswald are talking right before they go into a meeting. And this scene just went on forever, and it did not have to go on for that long. And... Like, that scene really taught me that I should, like, when I script, I should have bullet points of things I want to go over (laughs) in that scene. And then just, like, make sure I just stick to those points as succinctly as I can. (laughs) And then, like, the scene won't go on for, like, 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'd say that there's times where you're going to want to violate that. Like, I I feel like certain scenes... (laughs) 
particularly with, you know, if you're going for something with a manga influence, as we know from Shonen Action Series, you can have a single fight last for several volumes. Okay, don't, if you don't emulate Shonen Action right. Series with your fight scenes. <laughs> that's a request. Yeah. Well, that's why I like Hunter Hunter. <laughs> because they just cut out a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be shown. <laughs> As some as somebody who hasn't read the old version, I I I, I actually started following you around the time you started the new version. So I've been following that from the okay. beginning, but I only discovered that there was an old version like a week ago. <laughs> so oh, I have that's I have zero experience from that. So are you following the plot in a similar order, or are you mixing things up? Uh, how's that working? Um, in the old version, I had a prologue that lasted thirteen pages. Mm-hmm. I am basically. <laughs> Going over all the stuff that happened in that prologue in greater detail. Okay. Be- and I'm also mixing things around. I'm changing character relationships to make them more dynamic and to drive the plot more. <laughs> um, the things that are happening right now in this version of Knights Errant is I'm taking the prologue from the original and just going into what's happening in greater detail just so that I can show more of what's happening instead of having to tell what's happening later on. Cool, um, yeah. So. Always a good plan with comics is mm. to show, not tell. Actually, yeah. it's really always a good plan with any sort of writing. Yeah. <laughs> show, not tell. Um, yeah, and that's why I actually stopped the first version of Night's Errant, because it had mm-hmm. gotten to the point where I had to tell so much, mm. um, because I'd started the story too late. And... I just wanted to have a clean slate and, like, kind of start from a more clearer platform about why any of this is happening. Mm -hmm. So Um, in the original version, were you kind of just working page by page, or were you scripting things out by scene? Were you thumbnailing things out in advance? Sort of, like, talk about how your process has changed. um, When I first was doing it, I I would have an outline, but it was mostly page by page, um, Mm -hmm. which is why I kind of ended up kind of trapping myself in scenes I wanted to be done. <laughs> I wouldn't script things out as much as I wanted to. Like, I would just, like, go page by page and go with the flow at the time. Hmm. Um, right now, I script things out, and while some things will change uh, once I've reached the thumbnail stage and when I'm inputting this text, it's no longer changing as wildly as it used to uh, when I was working on the first one. Because back then, I would start a page with a certain idea, and by the time I ended it, it would be totally different, <laughs> go in a completely different direction, and last 10 extra pages. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't a very efficient system. I feel like that's something that happens a lot when people are starting with web comics. Like, I think, you know... As an artist, you just need to kind of get out there and make stuff, and webcomics is obviously a really great way to do that because you can get feedback and build an audience and, yeah. and just try and, and work to a set schedule. But I found this even at Tokyopop, we had a lot of people coming in who'd been doing webcomics, is that if you're thinking about things page by page as, to, in, in, as opposed to chapter by chapter, even volume by volume, you're kind of structuring the story in a really different way. So there was one creative team in particular that fortunately they were doing a comedy. So this worked pretty well, but they were really used to doing like one joke per page and one punchline per page. And 
it kind of worked, but it meant that like overall the story flow when you were reading it as a volume just didn't quite move as smoothly as you wanted to. Um, And even things, and this is because Sparkler is primarily digital. uh, We haven't really been thinking about it as much, but as we're doing more, more and more print books, there's a sense as well of driving the reader to the next page or understanding where there's going to be a page turn and where things are going to be a a spread. Um, Mm -hmm that I think also really can give you interesting opportunities as an artist if you're if you're starting to take that into account. Um, So not just sort of individually page by page on a screen, but how does page three look next to page four? Uh, How does page four look next to page five? How are you kind of driving the narrative really sequentially? And it's just it's not obvious if you're used to working in one format versus another. So this isn't a it's just kind of me <laughs> making a statement of like something that I've, I've found in my years as a comic book editor that I think is, is interesting is how structure really does affect function um, mm-hmm. and affect the narrative. Definitely. And that's why I like Manga Studio um, mm-hmm. because when you lay out pages in Manga Studio and then look at it in the story view, you can see how mm-hmm. the pages will look next to each other real easily. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can plan for spreads. So that is something you're doing then? Uh, that's something I started doing halfway through um, the first version of Night's Errant. Interesting. Um, okay. Because I, in the first version, I was kind of trying to have a cliff fang- cliffhanger at the end of each page. Right. Um, a substitution for the punchline per page. Right, right. Which um, makes sense when you're serializing something online. <laughs> so it's yeah. not like it's a bad strategy. <laughs> Yeah, it's just sometimes the cliffhangers can come off as a little hackneyed, so you have to find a yeah. way of, like, not making it like, oh, what will happen next? Who knows? But, right, um, right. But yeah, that was something I started doing halfway through the first run. Everybody always likes to hear about, like, tools. So sort of what what's your process from, like, a tool standpoint? Are you doing everything digitally? Or are you, like, thumbnailing in hard copy and then scanning? Sort of what's your process that way on a technical I- side? I do things like mostly digitally. When I'm coming up with like page ideas, sometimes I'll doodle them down in a notebook and I do some paneling ideas there, but mostly I'll do everything digitally. Mm -hmm. Um, I do thumbnailing and inking and sketching and all that on Manga Studio. And then for coloring, I export to Photoshop and then I'll do, then I'll letter in Photoshop as well. Nice. is that kind of how you, I guess you've been doing that the, the, that way the whole time? Um, I used to do Photoshop uh, for everything. And then halfway through the first run of Night's Air, and I switched to Manga Studio because I learned they have a perspective ruler. And the ah. perspective ruler is great. And everyone <laughs> should learn to use the perspective ruler because it'll save your life. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll actually teach you a lot about freehanding uh, perspective. Just because you get used to visualizing everything in like 3D mm. um, by using those tools. What do you think is sort of your biggest challenge as an artist? What do you really struggle with still? Or what do you feel like you struggle with still? Um, it used to be backgrounds, but then I kind of drilled myself into doing backgrounds all the time. So now my biggest struggle is people, drawing people <laughs> fluidly. <laughs> I feel like I got used to one thing so quickly that I completely forgot how to do the other thing. <laughs> so I've been trying to relearn how to draw people and kind of how to simplify my style slightly just so that drawing people becomes less of a chore and 
is fun again. <laughs> and I'm I'm having fun now. I think I got it down. I think I got it down this chapter. <laughs> You're in New York, right? Yeah, I'm in New York. Uh, do you do things like go to live drawing sessions ever or kind of uh, go to like figure drawing sessions? Not yet. I've been drawing yeah. people on the subway sometimes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> I did read something on your Twitter about tents. Is there is there a story here oh. about drawing tents? Oh. Yeah, in the first version of Knights Errant, there is a scene, well, multiple chapters that primarily just take place in tents. And I did not know how to draw tents. Halfway through this scene, I realized that the structure of the tent didn't make any sense. Like, <laughs> any physical sense. Is this, like, so interior I, or exterior? Interior. Okay. <laughs> the interior made zero sense. Like, there weren't enough poles holding it up. <laughs> so, so I had to edit 10 pages. I had to edit the backgrounds of 10 pages so that there'd be this pull, <laughs> like, holding the tent up because it was driving me up a wall. I was like, there has to be a pull there. Someone's going to notice it, and I'm going to be so embarrassed. <laughs> like, I need to fix this right now before anyone says anything. <laughs> so that taught me to do layouts. There you go. So did anyone notice? No. No one noticed because I fixed it really fast. Okay. (laughs) Or they were too polite. They were like, oh, oh, I won't bring it up. I won't bring it up. (laughs) How that tent makes zero sense. Don't worry. Everyone's just thinking about how they want your characters to make out. It's No one cares about the background. Pretty much. Pretty much. And I think that sometimes. I'll be working on a background. I'll be like, do they really care about this desk? Do they care (laughs) about the wood on this desk? Well, I care. I care about the wood on this desk. (laughs) So I'm going to draw it. (laughs) Oh, man. So what kind Back of things then. do you use for reference? How do you how do you do your research? I will Do you find I a guess. lot of like interior photographs of tents to use? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. I Google image searched <laughs> medieval tent. <laughs> and are there a lot of resources of, for that? There probably are. <laughs> well, there are a lot of like Renaissance fairs, so like oh, they'll there be, like so sometimes I'll try to emulate um how tents were actually set up back then. Like, I'm not being super strict. Like, if it's like, oh, this is an 18th century tent style, not a 16th century tent style, it'd be like, I don't care. It looks better. Let me use it. Yeah. <laughs> so there are some anachronistic things in Night's Errand. And it's also mm-hmm. not literally set on Earth. So <laughs> I feel like I can mess with the details slightly if it's, I don't know, more aesthetically, like, cohesive mm-hmm. or something that's easier to draw. <laughs> Because that's one thing I'm doing with armor. Mm-hmm. I'm mostly basing the armor on 16th century armor, but technically it should be 17th century. But 17th century armor can be really difficult to draw, so 16th <laughs> it is. <laughs> is, uh, is 16th century kind of what you... Like, what would you say that uh, the the setting is, if you had to describe it in kind of historical terms? It's like late medieval, early renaissance, kind of an alternative take on the Reconquista um, and the Spanish Inquisition. Okay. Oh, cool. So it's where all the... This will will come up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It'll come up. Yeah. But it's also drawing from the investiture um, conflict in er, like mid 
medieval times. So like from 1100. So that's like much earlier, but I'm also drawing from that for inspiration. So oh, cool. lots of Pope drama. In the <laughs> pope drama. <laughs> I think that's one of the things like I'm not a historian, but I, I kind of have a semi-amateur interest in history and mm-hmm. I have traveled in Europe slightly. I think it's really easy to forget that our idea of sort of modern nations and sort of where the boundaries were and sort of what consisted of, you know, what these nations consisted of is, is all very recent. So, mm-hmm. you know, up until whatever the, the 18th century, you know, Italy was still a bunch of different States and like the unification of Spain happened way later than we sort of realize or like yeah. France, <laughs> like what was France? Um, you know, what we think of now as France is, is a very kind of modern concept in a lot of ways. The, um, the characters, the king's army um, that's fighting against the Margrave in Knights Errant, the king's army is from the kingdom of Vital, which is based on the kingdom of Italy. And it was, do you know anything about the Holy Roman Empire? Yeah, I do, sort of. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of based on that. So uh-huh. it'll well, like, also that's be the funny thing about the Holy Roman Empire is that you think that it's going to be in Italy, and it's it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's mostly so. <laughs> so yeah, this is like set in like weird Italy, Germany, Spain, Austria, somewhere. Right. <laughs> so it's like a fun mishmash of all these things. So could could we could you talk a little bit about your characters now? People who've read uh, what we've got up on Sparkler of Knights Errant. Uh, clearly, Will is the standout uh, of the <laughs> characters in terms of who's uh, got the most going on. So, uh, yeah. Will is my darling. I love Will. <laughs> I saw your little chibi axe go up on. I think it was on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> like the... Will is my darling, darling, darling princess. <laughs> How do you pronounce the name of of Will's axe? Uh, Saida. Saida. Okay. It means. Um, Sometimes it means like the lady, um, but Saida was the name of a pirate queen. <laughs> oh, cool! Uh, excellent. And she was considered to be one of the most important female figures of the Islamic West in the modern age. So that's a little <laughs> reference <laughs> thrown in there. Oh, that's really cool. The Islamic West meaning like Spain, ish, Spain, uh-huh. Morocco. Okay. Yeah, Algiers, yeah. Turkish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say that uh, references to lady pirates are always <laughs> appreciated by, I think, yes. our, most of our audience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Saida just popped out to me as a name, so oh, that's I picked cool. it. And actually, when I named the axe, some commenters thought that the axe was magic and that Wilfred could talk to it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just gonna know, know that like, Wilfred does talk to the axe, but not because it's magic. It's just Will it's talking just Will's to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Will not gets... that that's, you know, you never know. Like, that could be a thing. So, it's I just would, not. <laughs> yeah, I would, say, I would say most of us talk to our computers sometimes. So, I think we're kind of, you know, on that wavelength. We all talk I to our... I mostly swear at mine, but... Well, yeah. Same idea. Yeah. Yeah, Wilfred loves their axe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying uh, to think of, like, what other characters you can talk about that aren't going to be, like, spoilerific. There's Beppe. We're going to see a lot more of Beppe this time around. I'm excited about that. Yeah. So, Or, like, see Beppe. see Beppe in kind of a different context. So. Yeah. Beppe was a bit character in the first version, 
but he is much more prominent in this one. And Anton as well, right? Yeah. And Anton, Anton's deal is still mostly the same, uh, <laughs> but he's slightly different. He's less of a homophobe in this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not to keep referencing to the older version of my comic that I like to pretend <laughs> does not exist. <laughs> it is kind of interesting to talk about. Cool. I've, I don't know, like, what other, what other things are kind of you into these days? What's been, what do you do when you're not drawing Knights Errant? What keeps you motivated, kind of keeps you inspired? Watching Hunter Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is like the first, it's been the first time I've been that addicted to something, so I've been. Really? Reading. I yeah. Mean, I know that I, you're really addicted to it, but like, <laughs> having having had many obsessive fandoms over the years, I'm like, you're coming a little late to this game. <laughs> oh no, I've had I've had obsessive fandoms in the past. It's just I've had a long dry period. I where, see. Hmm. And then Hunter Hunter came back into my life. <laughs> but um, I've actually been having fun reading a certain arc in the comic because uh, Togashi does interesting stuff with page layouts. And mm-hmm. how to scare the reader when flipping the page. Mm-hmm. Um, because he'll kind of have uh, page turn jump scares. Mm. Where he'll ha- mostly have the same panel, and the next panel will be on the next page, but more horrifying. Mm. So it's like kind of like a flip book of terribleness. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, I've been having fun like analyzing how he's been doing that. And I don't know, I'm a huge comics nerd and layouts nerd, so I mostly just read comics in my free time. What else have you been reading lately? Anything particularly exciting? Because, um, like, I, I would say that, like, other than Homestuck, which is a continual obsession for me, I've been through kind of a fandom dry spell as well. It's kind of why I've been skipping around through a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So, um, Last year I read Ancillary Justice and was really into that. Mm-hmm. And the... Then I read the sequel, which was also really good. And I rec- That's a, really- a pro-science fiction series, right? Yes. It's uh, really good. It's called the Imperial Rock series. Imperial Rock? R-O-C-K? No, R-A-D-C-H. Rocked. I'm oh, not sure rocked. To- okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I really recommend that. It does okay. interesting things with gender as well. And it's a, it's a, a female author, right? Right. Um, yeah. Forget her name right now. I'm doing an awful job. <laughs> the only reason why I know about it is because I joined a like feminist sci-fi book club recently, <laughs> or rather, my <laughs> friend started it, and that was something that we were talking about as a potential thing to read. So you should definitely read it. It's really okay. good. Okay. <laughs> uh, were there any other questions about Wilfred? Uh, like, there's so much I want to talk about, but, like, I really don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, that's um, the thing. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like even a month from now, after we sort of, well, no, maybe not. Because I was going to say, like, after we get the next chunk of pages out, there'll be a little bit more that's that we can talk about. But I'm I'm curious, this is from my editorial perspective, of, like, I know that a lot of people are going to be coming over from sort of your old fan base, uh, mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people, based on the comments we've had so far on Sparkler, there's a bunch of people who are brand new to the series as well. Yeah. So yeah, um, I don't want to spoil them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just I think that's going to be interesting. 
it's hard without spoilers, you know. I, I, I know. I want yeah, to be like I, get really in depth about the characters and the and the world and the plot, and it's like no, you know, I don't even know anything yet because <laughs> I haven't read the old one. <laughs> don't read the old one. <laughs> okay, I promise I won't read the old one. I mean, you can. I I, I, I I won't tell you what to do, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, looking back, like there are parts that are like nice. That I feel like, okay, I did a pretty good job. And then there are other parts where, like, I, no, I was a fool. <laughs> I was I think you did a great job establishing an intriguing world and a cast of really exciting characters. So. And, and, you know, the fact that you can do it again, I think, is something that's going to appeal to a lot of people. Because I know a fair number of people who have that one story that's, like, in the back right. of their mind that's uh-huh. kind of, like, their story. And some of them are afraid to start it because they don't think they're good enough. But there's nothing stopping you from starting it twice, you know? Yeah, That's true. exactly. Yeah. Like, starting Knights Errant the first time, I was like, I know I'm not good enough yet, but I want to try. And then <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm redoing this. I might never be good enough. <laughs> Hey, it's but a, it's a really like, ambitious, like, first project, you know? This is no, yeah, like, 20-page sure. short about, like, two characters. I know, right. it's going to be so long. <laughs> so long. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's going to be but fun. I think, like, I think it's good just to remind people that, you know, any sort of artistic endeavor is always a process. Like, you're always going to be growing and changing as a creative force. And yeah. even artists who have been in the industry for years, like, I love this about even Japanese mangas, that, like, Fruits Basket, the first couple volumes of Fruits Basket look completely different from... <laughs> volume 27 of Fruits Basket. And that's mm-hmm. with, you know, eight volumes of other series already under her belt. Um, her, her style still really changed and evolved in that time. And you see this a lot with, you know, professional artists in whatever context is that their work is going to evolve over time. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I think just in the age of the Internet and webcomics, some of that early evolution is a little more public than it, you know, can be sometimes. So, yeah. Um, I think that's cool. I, I find that really inspirational. So, like, you want somebody who's going to be improving their craft. As an editor, that's mm-hmm. something I'm looking for, is people who aren't satisfied with where they are and who are really challenging themselves to to do better and to grow, because um, mm-hmm. that's what makes stories interesting, is that growth process. So, going back to talking about liminal states, maybe you'll always kind of be in a liminal state as an artist, and it's just, yeah. you're always struggling <laughs> to kind of get to that next level. So, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, there's something, like, something, it's a relief to realize that you're never, for some people, you're never going to be good enough for what you're drawing, so you might as well draw it and improve. <laughs> right, so. right. Yeah, the only the only way you get better is by doing it and potentially messing it up. Um, messing up and is great. <laughs> messing up is great. Messing up is a learning experience. <laughs> this is actually the other funny thing, I'm going to go talk about my video editing project again, is that the company that's sponsoring it, you know, it's about science and it's about aviation and stuff. And they're they're kind of averse to telling stories of failure, even mm-hmm. though stories of failure are sort of part of what science is. It's like science doesn't happen when somebody magically wakes up and knows the right answer to something. It's like you have to try a bunch of times and screw up and, and learn from each of those screw ups before you figure out like the right way to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I think it's important that people remember that, that you're never going to be perfect right out the gate. 
Yeah. Almost never. <laughs> uh, and that learning how to fail and how to, you know, look at yourself and, and be critical without being down on yourself and, you know, looking at it as a process of improvement um, is a really useful skill to have. It's a really important skill to have. And I think it's a really tough skill to have. I think, you mm-hmm. know, people are sensitive. Putting your work out in public and, and facing that potential criticism, that's a scary thing to do, but yeah. it's something you kind of have to do. Helps you grow really grow. fast. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) You get a thick skin. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. So any closing thoughts from you? Really looking forward to sharing more of Night's Errant with, like, new readers. And it's always interesting seeing how new readers, like, interact with the story compared to, like, well, like we were saying earlier, with, like, people who have been following it since its first version. And Mm -hmm. I'm also just excited because, like, the plot's moving. Yay! <laughs> I like. <laughs> I'm looking forward to showing like those plot, showing like what's in store for these characters, and their kind of train wrecky lives. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I, I think I think uh, I can speak for most of the people listening to this when I say that we are very much looking forward to watching those train oh, wrecks they unfold. Will. There's so many changes that are going to happen. <laughs> Um, I guess in this world it'd be like horse carriage like Rex. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, trains yet. They haven't invented steam power quite yet. No. Tent collapses. Yeah, tent collapses. Yeah. Oh, tents. Oh. <laughs> there will be lots of feels. The the main criteria for all Sparkler series is to have lots of feels, and I know that we picked yeah. up this series. <laughs> With the anticipation of many feels, and I know you're going to deliver, so. <laughs> uh, I'm going <laughs> to own myself. I'm going to make myself sad. <laughs> like, this, is, this is a comedy, but it's a really, really dark comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's really the best. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for... Um, like talking with me. Like, oh, I, thank you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you for yeah. Thank you for joining the company. Thank you for talking with us. And uh, I look forward to an exciting relationship, exciting working relationship with you from here on out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be getting those pages soon. <laughs> I want that cover too. I'm excited about the cover. All right. Ooh, the I want. I want to see covers. Oh well. Right now. It's still in like sketch form. So. Did you change your idea again, or? <laughs> no, 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 no. Sticking okay. to that idea that I sent you. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> and then the final, then the next issue is just stick figures and like a note take. <laughs> I ran out of time. <laughs> see, see, this is great. Why it's ha- why it's great to have an interview between the creator and their editor because this always comes up. It's like <laughs> so. By the way, I'm sorry you haven't received my pages yet, and then... My deadline's the 27th, right? <laughs> oh, you're good. No, you're good. Okay. All right. <laughs> you're, you're, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, one, of, one of my favorite, like, industry stories was uh, Maki Murakami, the gravitation artist, uh, mm-hmm. came to Otakon. Probably was like 2008, maybe, 2007, and I got sent to, to escort her. Uh, I was her kind of, like translator slash buddy the whole time. So it was like me and her editor <laughs> and, and Maki Murakami walking around 
you know, the Baltimore Harbor area for a long weekend. And we had a great time. It was really fun. She's a, she's a real riot. Um, and a couple of years later, I got sent to Japan to do, um, publisher liaison stuff. So like we were going out and trying to get new series and like talking to different publishers going around. And, uh, we stopped by the Gentosha office and her, you know, was talking to her editor while I was there. And he's like, yeah, she hasn't been turning her pages in. And he basically like put me on the phone with her <laughs> in like the middle of the editorial office to yell at her to turn her pages in. <laughs> I was like, but a sensei, all of the American fans are waiting for the next, you know, installment of Gravitation EX. You better get your pages done. And she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so that was my experience with the Japanese editorial process was. Her oh, editor no. sticking me on her <laughs> on behalf of the American fans. <laughs> well, if what I've seen in manga and anime is true, they will use everything at their disposal to get those pages. I yeah. still don't think it worked, unfortunately. I still don't think she actually turned that chapter in. <laughs> but he tried. Uh, I'm trying hard. I'm, I have the first page colored, and I color fast, so hopefully the next so one... So far, so good. Up. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Okay. So. All right. <laughs> Anyway, well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us, and hopefully we'll get no to do problem. this again sometime. So yeah, maybe yeah, in like six months, and we can do you know the spoilerific version. We can talk about the characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have a few more characters to talk about at that point. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, uh, we want to thank everyone listening for joining us today, and we will have some more creator interviews hopefully soon in, soon in the future, and more podcasts. We're uh, going to make this a monthly thing as of year three. So you'll be hearing more of us talking in the future. And thank you all for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs>